I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Hi there, and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. The CEO of Brooks Running, Jim Weber, has written a book. I just finished reading it, and I have to say, I loved it. It's called Running with Purpose, and it tells the remarkable story of the turnaround at Brooks Running. Once nearly bankrupt, it's now a billion-dollar brand. I think Brooks is a fantastic story on a couple levels. It's a great you know, competitive strategy story, David and Goliath story. It's a challenger brand story. It's a great turnaround story. And there's actually a couple of cases that have been written in business schools that that cover it. Jim has been CEO since 2001. He reflects on his leadership style. He says he's hardwired to be a glass half full kind of guy, something he decided on when he was just a young child. I just couldn't quite find my way. I was bullied a bit and I had some horrible uh, uh, experiences in, in the classroom in second grade and third grade and fourth grade. And and so I, I don't know, you know, why I was able to react the way I was, but I, I just sort of, you know, lifted my head up at age 10 and I, I just decided I wanted to be happier than I felt. Um, I wanted to be good at something. Five years ago, Jim was diagnosed with cancer. Though he's overcome the odds and is cancer-free today, it was a big setback for an avid runner. It's been a journey. I do not recommend cancer to anyone. It's not a club that you want to join, but uh, having joined it, I feel fortunate to be where I am today. Jim explains how his personal and corporate setbacks have shaped him as a leader and in turn made Brooks running as successful as it is today. We're not trying to be anybody else. We're trying to be Brooks. Here's Jim on Out of Office. Jim, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here today. You've been CEO of Brooks Running for a very long time, for over two decades. What made you want to write the book now? You know, it's interesting. I'd been thinking about a book for probably the last six or seven years. And and the core essence of it is I think Brooks is a fantastic story on a couple levels. It's a great, you know, competitive strategy story, David and Goliath story. It's a challenger brand story. It's a great turnaround story. And there's actually a couple of cases that have been written in business schools that that cover it. So I, you know, I think I think what we're doing isn't new. But it's a bit novel um, because the brand was at one point high performance, you know, sort of a class brand for enthusiasts and performance products. It went more mass and casual products and the like. And we brought it back to a premium performance enthusiast brand, which which is pretty rare in in certainly in sporting goods um, and equipment. Um, so it's it's uh, it's it's a fun journey. And, and what I get excited about is building a brand for the long haul. And, and we're doing that with a team around a purpose in, in a fantastic category. So for all those reasons, I just think it's a, it was a great story that, that I wanted to tell. 
Well, I'm glad you told it. And did you enjoy the process, reflecting, researching, writing? You know, it's interesting because um, what started it, uh, I took a, a four-week mini sabbatical in 2015. And I just committed to being off the grid for those those days. And I, will, I, I wrote four hours every morning. And so that was really unpacking my own personal journey and, you know, trying to understand why I am who I am. And I needed to do that work. But it, it led right into Brooks. And so, you know, when I, I had a, a meeting with Warren Buffett just over two years ago, a breakfast meeting where we were talking about all sorts of topics. And at the end of the meeting, you know, this was March 2020. He said, Jim, Brooks is a great story. You should write a book. And, and so that's, you know, that's what really prompted me to do it. But, it, you know, I think it started with me sort of unpacking why I am who I am and, and the leader that I've become. So it, it sort of all came together in the book. Now, what makes Brooke, Brooks really stand out as a company is the turnaround story, is a David versus Goliath story that you mentioned. The company has gone from being close to being bankrupt to having its best year. You achieved a billion dollars in revenue in 2021. You've made lots of changes. But if you had to pick one change that made the biggest difference, is it possible to even identify that? You know, everything in life is a journey and Brooks has been on a journey and it has, it has several chapters. But I think for me and also for Brooks, the biggest difference in our success has been this long-term focus on a North Star. We, we've had a purpose around inspiring everyone to run their path, but it's really been around building as well a, a great business against that brand in a fantastic $20 billion global category. So because we have that North Star and long-term focus, we've stayed on it and focused through every challenge we've had. And we've had to do pivots and so on and so forth, but we've always been focused on the runner and building this performance brand with them. I think that's the reason it's such an interesting story because I could have easily left four different times in a private mm -hmm. equity mode, right? Where you, you sort of reach a plateau, everybody high fives a success and everybody goes on. And I've stayed all through each one of those milestones because the opportunity for this brand is, is so compelling. And throughout, you've just stayed focused on your niche, which is the runner, right? You haven't got distracted, attempted to foray into other areas of fitness and sport. You know, that's true. And I think what's so interesting about the business world is that there's every category maybe has one large leading platform brand or business. And some of them are true platforms. In athletic footwear and apparel and outdoor and fitness, we have one or more of those. And so if you're not that leading platform brand, you better have a niche. <laughs> you better have a focus. So I think what, what's so exciting is we've chosen the biggest category in sporting goods, fitness, athletic footwear and apparel running, because it's a special sport, right? It's one of the, maybe the original sport, track and field, cross country, from, from school to the Olympic level and the roads and the trails, ultras, et cetera. But it becomes more than that. It's bigger because it's, it's so for, you know, 150 million people run. For many of them, it's an investment in themselves, their health and wellness and fitness. So that's the space that we're trying to, that's the niche that, that Brooks is trying to build a meaningful, compelling brand, you know, with, with runners in. And 
we're so excited about that because it happens to be a huge niche, a global niche. But that's that's true because we're the only brand, the only major brand that's really focused just on running and what that means. And so we're excited about that. We're I would I I've often said we're doing something that really no one's quite done before because all the other brands that have become meaningful and run have expanded into all these other categories and and, the, and those are you know they're those are probably good opportunities and good businesses too we just chosen to be you know highly relevant um, to a customer cohort and and it happens to be a huge cohort and a cohort that got much bigger during the pandemic right you've seen a massive boom I mean what else could people do during lockdowns and yeah, <laughs> stay at home orders except go out and run you know, and and when all the lockdowns began to happen, Malika, we, you know, we saw all of retail close down in a week across Europe. It rolled through the North North America and, of course, in Asia. And so, when we saw that happen, we we've seen in in trying times in the past, in recessions and just difficult economic times, we've seen running actually start to grow because it's so convenient. Mm. It's out your back door. And uh, and it's 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 affordable. You don't have to pay a monthly fee to go run in 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 your gym or in your your back your back neighborhood. So, you know, even with the sports shutdown, we thought as as March, April, and May in, in the North American shutdowns were coming to be, that there was a good chance that running would make the cut. And we feel so grateful. This this you know this disruption from from COVID and the economic disruption has been so asymmetric. It's just it's just not been even across businesses, and we're very fortunate because running, walking, hiking, just just getting out and moving was a COVID friendly activity. So yeah, we we ended up being you know essentially perfectly positioned for what was available to people, and and running has grown dramatically in the last two years. So can I tell you something that I started running um, just as the lockdowns began and I'd never run before. And like you said, this was something that was easy to do. And I joined a women's running group and it's called WRW, Women Running the World. <laughs> Fantastic. That's, that's the and best thing I've heard yet today. That's wonderful. Yes, and it's about 150 women who get together in my neighborhood Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and we get together in a park, and we just go, and we are off to Berlin in two weeks for the half marathon. Congratulations. That's fantastic. All the best. Well, I don't know congratulations yet. I'm nervous as hell. It's the first one, but... <laughs> I know, but you're, you've been training, and that's the achievement in and of itself. I hope you have a great experience there. And there are lots of Brooks running shoes in the group. I do have to tell you that. <laughs> that's, that I always enjoy hearing that. We're as a as a niche brand, you know, we still uh, it makes us smile when we see shoes on feet. Um, we count runners our <laughs> feet at a time, so we love to hear that. I didn't realize how old the company is, honestly, till I started researching the company for for this interview, and I was surprised that it's more than a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. How do you stay relevant while still holding on to some of the tradition that the company is known for? Yeah, you know, it's 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 such a unique story. Brooks was founded in 1914 in Philadelphia, and it, and it quickly became a full-line athletic footwear manufacturer. And that's the reason I, I understood only much later on why almost all brands were making every kind of shoe there was and, and family footwear, athletically styled family footwear, all the way up to performance. Because 
because in the in the days when you you had very you know focused supply chains, you had to keep the factory busy. You had to go from baseball mm-hmm. cleats to football cleats to running, et cetera. So Brooks was in everything all the way up through the 80s and 90s. Even though I I'm older, I grew up, I came out of college in in the early 80s, and the jogging boom had started in the United States, right? So I I started running marathons and after I quit playing competitive sport, I ran for fitness and fun. And so that was a huge boom time in the company. And Brooks was there. Brooks had some of the most interesting, innovative technology for runners in the 70s, 80s and on. But they, they, were, they had several owners. They had many CEOs. They weren't managed that well as a business. And so when you fast forward through, you know, we, had, we still had good um, performance running products in the marketplace. But we were playing in all of these different categories trying to be successful. And we weren't. We were literally seventh, eighth, or ninth brand in basketball and court shoes and family footwear. And, you know, the, the bigger brands just do that so, so well. So for us, you know, really going back to almost our roots, where it was a performance piece of equipment for an athlete. And, and, and runners, the definition of an athlete is right foot, left foot, repeat. If you're, if you're yes. moving, right, you need good gear. We think every runner deserve, deserves performance. So, so by focusing back on really what Brooks was best known for and not competing against anything else, it, it really was empowering for our people because now we could really focus on that product getting better every season putting all of our energies and efforts into making the best running gear that we could. And, and the goal is to make the best in the world, right? That's who we're competing with. So, so I think the journey for Brooks of making an old brand new, here's how I see it is that, you know, you have to earn your customer every day. And I think that's what I learned early in my career is that early in my career, I learned how to manage a brand, how to manage a product line. Um, early in my career, one of my bosses once said to me, Jim, that's great. You're, you've proven you're a good turn. You can turn around businesses. You can manage through uh, challenges. But can you grow a brand? And that's where I think that's the entrepreneurial um, mindset, right? To be able to grow a brand, this customer focus and, and attract new customers into what you're doing. That's a skill set that I didn't have early in my career. And it's it's fun. It's challenging. But that's the mo- that's what we added to Brooks. Instead of just managing a hundred year old brand, we challenge ourselves every day to make it relevant and interesting and exciting and compelling. Uh, you know, really connecting with the hearts and minds of runners with performance products and celebrating their run to win the- to win their trial that they'll at least try our products. And in our category, you know, that first brand experience is a product experience. So, so yeah, I think that the, the challenge on on growing a brand is very different from managing one. And and we've been doing that now for twenty years at Brooks. So we've this company is young. <laughs> it's a hundred and ten years, but it's young because you know every day we wake up and and you know we know we're going to have to earn a runner's trust and trial and and build a relationship with them. So yeah, huge learning for me because I think before I came to Brooks, uh, that was that was a mindset, let alone a skill that I was still trying to develop. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You mentioned the word trust just now, and I'm glad you did. I was going to come to that next. You talk a lot about that in your book, the importance of running, of earning a runner's trust, but also about earning your employees' trust. How do you go about earning, first of all, a runner's trust? You know, I I, I just see it as the foundation of of really brand a, a great brand and and the foundation of authentic leadership and and frankly effective leadership is trust with people and so you know we and because we 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 are anchored in performance a runner knows at mile 20 three uh, two weeks into the shoe whether they'll ever buy that shoe again and so in the early days um our product wasn't that aesthetically appealing design was was yet to come I believe it is beautiful now and we're, we're producing fantastically gorgeous product. But, but in the early days, we were more focused on function because we knew fit, feel and ride and, and how that shoe felt both from a, a comfort and a performance level and injury prevention features and the like, whether we'd ever get the second shoe. And so trust is the key to getting the second shoe purchase. And, and that's the piece there. And then in leadership, you know, I just think, you know, that ultimately your customers smart and they're going to figure out what your company is all about. And and so, you know, building an organization where not only we trust each other, but we're building foundations in our values and in our philosophies and our strategies. You know, every every peel of, of the onion at Brooks, every time you look under the hood at Brooks, you're going to find running. That's what you're going to find here. So I think we built we built the brand, you know, on on building credibility and trust with runners. That's the you can't say you're an authentic leader. You can't say you're an authentic brand. In my view, you have to earn that. You have to earn that authentic brat badge. And so for me, it's it's always behaviors. You know, I think in the long term, um, you're an outcome of your behaviors. And so that's why we, we talk a lot about trust in and around what we're promising, what we're convicted around, what we believe in, and, uh, and just executing that so consistently that we become trusted for it. So, so it's really about behaviors, I would say. Um, because that's what becomes culture that your, your, your brand is a collection of your behaviors. Your culture long-term is a collection of your behavior. So trust is a big deal for sure. Talking about leadership, Warren Buffett wrote the foreword to your book. And of course, uh, Brooks Running is a standalone company, but under the Berkshire Hathaway umbrella. What's it like working with Warren Buffett? It's, it's, uh, I'm just going to describe it as a gift. I've so enjoyed it because when I first met him in uh, probably 2011, I think we, we sat down and talked about Brooks and the opportunities with Brooks. I told him at that time that he didn't know it, but he'd been mentoring me for almost 25 years because I began reading his letters. And I tell the story in the book in the 1980s um, because I was working at a company that had competed with a Berkshire company. Yeah not successfully. And, uh, and since that time, I've just been a student of his thinking around brands and moats and business. And so, you know, I, uh, what, what 
the way we built Brooks, I knew would be appealing to Warren and Charlie Munger. I just, he, Charlie's the vice chairman and Warren, Warren's partner because we built a unique brand, a distinctive brand. We're not trying to be anybody else. We're trying to be Brooks. And we built it in a, in a really thoughtful way to bring value to the customer. And it, it's a great business with good margins and good returns on capital and the like. So, so when I first sat down with them, my first goal was to have him fall in love with Brooks. And, and he, I think he has, he just sees the opportunity that we have, but, but he's been so interesting. You know, Berkshire is, is a one-off, I believe corporate culture in the world because they really have this deserved trust culture for all of the business units and the leadership in the business units. And so we, we are responsible for Brooks in its entirety. We're, I'm the chief culture officer. I'm the chief strategy officer. I'm the chief risk officer. You know, they're cheering us on to look out 10 years long-term to build the brand. He so understands that brands are in the mind of the customer and you have to build trust and 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 affinity and and engagement. And there's plenty of competition out there. So so they've just cheered us on and doing that in in a long term way. And it's allowed us to play through challenging times, whether it was the pandemic or market shifts, changes in consumer behavior. You know, as long as we've stayed with runners, we've been successful. And and that's what Warren has encouraged us to do. It's such an interesting, he's, su he's such a smart guy. We had him out for an employee uh, town hall um, seven years ago. And, and he just gets it. You know, you've got to get your brand in the mind of the runner. And there's always going to be runners. And if you stay with them and evolve and lead them, you know, you're, you're going to have an incredible brand, you know, a decade from now. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. So I, I feel very fortunate. Um, I've, you know, I've learned a lot and he's reinforced a lot of how we think about our brand and our business and our, and our team. One story that really stuck with me when I read your book is um, you talk about the time when you were sick, and I'm glad you're doing better now. But after your surgery um, to get rid of your cancer, you were in hospital and you had these feeding tubes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, someone sends you a gift and it's a massive box of candy and it's from Warren Buffett. And you're sitting there thinking, gee, thanks, but, you know, I have these feeding tubes. What am I going to do with this gigantic box of candy? So can you tell our audience a little bit about what happened next when you read the note? I, yeah, I'd be glad to. And I'm smiling because it, it was just a stunning moment. <laughs> Warren often sends out boxes of seized chocolates. And uh, his holiday card has always got a funny picture of him with a, with a humorous quip. <laughs> but it always comes with a box of chocolates. So I'm in the hospital. It was an eight-day hospital stay to fully recover from a major surgery. Uh, and, and I've never been in a hospital before. So the whole thing was an experience. But I'm, I think it was day four. Here, I'm getting cards and well-wishers uh, sending support. It was just such wonderful, you know, to see how much support I had. So here comes a box of chocolates from Warren Buff. And I thought, what is he thinking? <laughs> I'm not going to have solid food for, for a good, you know, two months. You know, what is he thinking with a five-pound box of chocolates? So I opened the card and it was classic Warren. So Jim... These aren't necessarily for you, but I'll bet you're getting fantastic care at the University of Washington hospitals. And um, and so what I suggest is you put this out in the nurse's station and uh, thank them for the great care.
care you're getting and tell them if that great care continues, there's more where this came from. <laughs> so it was priceless, Warren. We put the, we put the uh, seized candies out in the nurse's station and people smiled every time they came in my room. It was, it was classic Warren. Um, he's so good at uh, engaging with people. He's got a brilliant business mind. But in the category of life's not fair, he's just also just a superhuman being and and doesn't miss a beat in engaging with people. It was it, was, it made me smile then; it still does. Oh, and I bet it made all the nurses smile and made everybody very happy. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was a I was a uh, popular person on the floor that week. <laughs> Are you doing better now? I am. So I'm. Uh, I'll be five years from my diagnosis this December. And, you know, like so many people, uh, when, whenever I have a friend or a family member that gets an XYZ cancer diagnosis, I go to the internet just to do some research mm-hmm. and the like. And the internet's full of information. And often it's, it's, it's unsettling because for me, the five-year survival rate for my cancer was 20%. Yeah. One in five would be here in five years. So I'm cancer-free. I feel so grateful, super fortunate to have the healthcare community that we have here in Seattle. It's world-class. So I'm just lucky in so many ways. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I've, I'm, I, I have a job I love. I'm working with a team I love. I have four grandchildren that are wonderful and pure joy. So um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. And uh, it's been a journey. I do not recommend <laughs> cancer to anyone. It's not a club that you want to join. But uh, having joined it, I feel fortunate to be where I am today. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, in your book, you say, my early life experiences created a lot of hardwiring in me, and it took me about 40 years to decide it and understand why I am who I am. Yet, you don't really talk that much about your early life in your book. Can you think of one or two experiences or perhaps people who've influenced you who really sort Mm -hmm. of you know, adjusted or influenced your hard wiring to make you who you are? Yeah, I'm sure it's, it took me a while to figure it out. So I'll try to be simple about it. But I think what was interesting about me is until I was about age 10, fourth grade, I was just kind of a lost, um, insecure, troubled kid. I felt different from everyone around me. I was, I was in a busy family for, for, uh, number four of, of six kids. Um, and we were all within eight years. So it was a very busy family and stressful. My, my dad was never a very happy person. He was an alcoholic and he was just stressed out in his world. And, and I didn't know why. And, and it sort of affected me. And then I just, you know, like a lot of kids, um, I just couldn't quite find my way. I was bullied a bit and I had some horrible uh, experiences in, in the classroom in second grade and third grade and fourth grade. And, and so I, I don't know, you know why I was able to react the way I was, but I, I just sort of 
you know, lifted my head up at age 10 and I, I just decided I wanted to be happier than I felt. Um, I wanted to be good at something. And, uh, and I saw in my friends' families, they just seemed happier and they were more calm. And, and so I just was, I just woke up and said, I'm on a, I'm on a mission. I want to, I want to have a life that's glass half full versus glass half empty. And, and so I think, you know, what, what my wiring, I, what I, what I, it took me a while to understand is, is how much that, that ambition to be something um, different from what I felt like I was at age 10, it just drove me. So it was more about, you know, working from fear of failure than it was about pursuing opportunity. It was it was more about avoiding, um, you know, sort of um, disappointment or, or failure. And, and but that's what that's what really led me uh, at Brooks to kind of reach for a long term, a longer term goal and not just these three year wins. But I think for me, that was some of the hard wiring is that I, I you know, I had my head down until I age 40 in my career before I lifted up and said, um, it's it's actually more about you know, achieving, you know, success and not being a failure. Um, it is about happiness. It is about engaging with people. It is about the relationships that you build along the way. And I, and I think for me, that's when it was, it, it became so clear. It's about the journey. You have to enjoy the moments along the way, because in, in a sense, you know, the finish lines never were that rewarding to me. The successes were never, they were fleeting. And so that's that's the hard wiring that I had is that I'm, I'm I'm still motivated. I'm still very competitive, but I'm trying to soak in, you know, every day in the journey along the way. And I think, you know, in my early in my early days coming out of my youth, I, I was just on a mission to not be a failure, I would say. This mission to not be a failure I guess that explains, I was going to ask you this, apparently you never took any vacation, you never really took any time off till you sat down to write the book. Is that part of it? Like this, you know, this fear of failing or like if you, um, you know, took your foot off the accelerator, something might go wrong. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I took vacations with my family, but often I'd be working on them. I never... The, the, the four-week uh, break that I took in 15 was only the second time I'd done more than a week. Jim, and that not good. <laughs> not good. Yeah, I'd take a week at a time, and then I'd be back. Part of it was, I would say, is I have, I have a sense of duty around leadership that's, that's hard to explain, and it's hardwired in me, is that when, I, when, I'm, when I'm accountable and responsible for something, um, and I think a CEO is is the steward of the enterprise, right? And I don't I don't feel I am a control oriented leader or manager. I think I I love being part of a team. So we have a very empowered, connected team. But my sense of accountability and responsibility is total. And and so you know I, what I've learned now is is how to uh, distribute that a little bit as well. But it, it's still the way I'm wired, and I think it's one of the reasons it makes me a successful leader within Berkshire, because I do operate as if I own this business, and I've always done that. I took complete ownership for every job that I've had. Brooks is the fourth business that I've run, and each of the other three. I took the same sense of accountability and responsibility for it. So I, that's, I'll, I'll call that a curse, you know, just the way I'm wired. I, I just feel uh, that, 
you know, it's sort of the adage of it's a team, it's an orchestra, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, so many metaphors for a, a, a team running a business. But in one sense, too, you're charting a course and you don't want to crash the ship, right? You just don't. And and we've had so many disruptive categories. Nobody uh, predicted COVID-19 and the impacts it had. But as a leader, you know, you're ultimately uh, and immediately responsible for navigating it. And we've done that really well, too. And we do that as a team. But anyway, yeah, I'm I would say I'm cursed by a sense of duty. Um, but I, I the truth is, I enjoy it. I love I love being a leader and I love being a part of a team. And, and so I wouldn't trade my job for anything, but I take it very seriously. Does it sometimes just feel too much? Or does your family complain that you're a bit obsessed with work? Uh, your wonderful wife, Mary Ellen, who you dedicate the book to, does she complain sometimes that you're all about work? You know, I think, it, yeah, I, I think here's what I would take away from where I've been. I wanted for my boys, um, I wanted them to be able to be proud of, of at least who I was and the way I carried myself in my life. Um, and it was, and I, we've had, you know, we're, I, we have good relationships all around, but I also know that I wasn't that, you know, sort of uh, wingman partner to them as a father that, that some other fathers are. But I think because this was part of my hard wiring, the most important thing to me was is that they wouldn't be, and frankly, I'll say it, embarrassed by me or, or um, because that was my upbringing or avoiding me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's you, you tend to parent, maybe at least I have, I've parented around, you know, priorities that I didn't have. And so I'm, I'm sure, you know, I've, I've got, there's gaps in terms of me being there uh, for them as a father in every sense and in every way that I could be. Um, but, you know, I think that um, I've done the best I could. And, and you know, I, I think they know I love them all. I'm supporting them all. And I've, I've been much closer to them than I ever was with my father. But you know, everybody parents differently and uniquely. And, and you know, it, it's so fun to talk about parenting because it is the most unique role in all of life. You know, you can be a, a, a manager and a contributor mm -hmm. and a leader and a blah, 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 blah. You can be a runner and a spouse and a, and a partner. Um, but being a parent is, is, is such a unique job and everybody obviously brings their own uh, playbook to it. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm, there's no question in my mind that uh, there are things that I haven't been there for um, with, you know, with both my wife and, and my children. And on the other side of it, I've done the best I can. And I think we're, we have a great family and we're connected. And I always try to be there if I can, if I can be helpful or they need me. Um, that comes first. And, you know, and I, we've had health issues with one of my sons and I, I, this was a moment. It isn't in the book, but I just told him, I'm your wingman, mm. whatever it takes, we're going to solve this. I am with you. And if it means I have to take time off work, I'll take whatever it is. This is number one. And, and that's the way it's been with my wife, Mary Ellen too. There's no ambiguity about, you know, them being number one. Um, and, and I'll be there if they need me. But for sure, I think, you know, everybody's, everybody that's parenting, it's, uh, it's a work in progress, because they don't hand you a manual of how to do it. But, um, I wish you know, I've did. given my <laughs> I know it's I've it, like so many parents, probably I've given them 
as best I could what I didn't have and I thought was important. Um, and I think generally, um, it's, it's worked out. Okay. They're all doing well. We're grateful. That's fantastic. A quick question about running. I know you've been passionate about running all your life. You've been a runner and you're slowly getting back into some form of running. You're working out. What's the future of running? And I ask this because when I run now, I look around and everyone's got these wearables and everyone's constantly looking at their watch and there's so many gadgets and devices. Is that the future of running? You know, it's a great question. And one of the truths of running, I think, is it's the ultimate non-virtual, non-digital human experience. It is you moving in the world. And, and it's, it's, it's undeniably a, a human physical experience. And, and so I think that's our role in one sense, right? We're the, we're the uh, antidote to this digital, you know, virtual lifestyle that, that is all around us. And, and screen time is just taking more and more and more and more and more of our hours. So, so in, at its core, I think it's the it's the non-virtual experience, you know, and I and that's and and I appreciate that so much now, you know, in the world where, you know, we've got digital natives that are that are literally growing up in these 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 digital communities and the like, you know, running has to fit into that. But I, I think, you know, I think at its core, it's going to be that anal that analog version of that digital life and, and, and all the wonderful things that that brings, the endorphins and, you know, just, just being healthy. I think, uh, you know, over time, I still believe that probably a well-lived life is going to be health and wellness and happiness and people and relationships and entertainment and fun and, and purpose and impact and meaning, right? So it's all those things. So there's always going to be a role, I think, for physical movement and activity, you know, for us. And, and that's the role we play. So we're, you know, we're, we're, I think for races and, and uh, 5Ks and 10Ks and marathons and half marathons, there's a, there's, you know, there's a role for NFTs and, and recognition and, and so on and so forth. We're, we're working on some things there, but I would say they're, they're, they're going to help create an experience around running they're not going to supplant the run. And so yeah, yet to be seen, but I think that's the role we play. We, we, we get to, you know, offer a physical world experience to add to people's digital lives. Jim Weber, thank you so much for joining me on Out of Office. I really enjoyed your book, Running With Purpose. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. That was Jim Weber, CEO of Brooks Running on Out of Office. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did recording it. Remember, Out of Office is an Apple podcast on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and wherever you go to for your regular podcasts. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen. I'm Malika Kapoor. I hope you stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. down has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.